Hey marketers, if you want to get the latest news, trends, and insights in marketing, advertising, and tech, check out the Adweek Podcast Network. Learn from leading voices across media and marketing with original shows like Yeah, That's Probably an Ad, Marketing Vanguard, and Tech Magic with Kathy Hackle. Start listening now by searching Adweek wherever you listen to podcasts. My dad works in B2B marketing. He came by my school for career day and said he was a big ROAS man. Then he told everyone how much he loved calculating his return on ad spend. My friends still laugh at me to this day. Not everyone gets B2B, but with LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people who do. Get $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash generate to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash generate. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be, to be. Hey everybody, this is David. Before we get started this week, I just want to tell you about an awesome event we have coming up on May 1st, uh, 2019 in New York City. Uh, it is called Elevate Creativity. This is our one-day conference where we bring in some of the brightest minds from some of the biggest brands and coolest agencies, and we get them all in one place to tell you the inside story behind some of their most attention-grabbing and successful work. Uh, it's going to be so much fun. We, you're going to hear the uh, the stories behind work that you know and love from brands like HBO, Refinery29, uh, IHOP, Adidas, and you know the focus this year is on bridging the real and digital world. So we're going to be talking activations. We're going to be talking in tech like AR and VR and bringing in some of the most uh, fascinating uh, new innovators in that space. You're going to hear from major agencies like Huge, Droga5, RGA, Giant Spoon, Lucky Generals, and that's just a few. We've got so many more. You can go to adweek.com slash elevate to see the lineup and learn more about it. And uh, unfortunately, our early bird pricing has closed, but I'm looking out for you. I have a, pro- a promo code you can use that will knock the price back down to the early bird pricing. Uh, you can just enter the promo code podcast. So that's adweek.com slash elevate. And when you click to save your seat, uh, use the promo code podcast, and that'll knock you back down to early bird pricing. Uh, once again, that's on May 1st in New York City. Uh, elevate creativity, uh, adweek.com slash elevate. Hope to see you there. This week's episode is brought to you by Facebook, which has a new podcast called Three and a Half Degrees, The Power of Connection. This podcast brings some of the smartest minds in business together to talk shop, exchange ideas, and share the stories behind their successes and failures. Each episode features two of the smartest people in business today. One of the people you'll hear from in this new episode is Antoinette Carroll from Creative Reaction Lab. Diversity is just saying you're at the table, you're, you're there. But with inclusion, it's saying that you are able to bring your best and authentic self. And to me, that means you're able to bring your purpose and your mission. Look for Three and a Half Degrees spelled out wherever you get your podcast, or visit facebook.com slash three and a half degrees to learn more and subscribe. That's Three and a Half Degrees, a new podcast from Facebook. You're listening to Yeah, That's Probably an Ad. This is the Adweek Podcast, where we talk about marketing, media, technology, pop culture, because in the end, everything is an ad. I'm David Greiner. I'm the creative and innovation editor with Adweek. And this week, uh, we've got a lot of uh, streaming to talk about. Uh, And so uh, we're going to be uh, just kind of working through a bunch of the news that's come out and our cover story uh, from this week's issue, uh, which is about uh, a really kind of fascinating trend in streaming, the return of free TV, basically, of of ad-supported streaming. 
streaming uh, and uh, in, in, you know, in challenge to the, the I think what we all typically think it was streaming, the Netflix model. With me to hash through all this, we've got Sarah Jurdy, a staff writer here at Adweek who covers the digital media world. Uh, Sarah, thanks so much for making time for us. Thanks for having me. And we've also got back frequent guest and TV media editor uh, for Adweek, Jason Lynch. Jason, how are you doing? I'm good. It's good to be back. It's been a while. Yeah. So I, it's like I was sitting here planning for this episode. I was like, I just want to talk to Jason about every story he's written for the last like three weeks. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot to talk about. There's so much going on, and it's and it's even for people like me who are kind of outside of the wonky side of the TV industry, like the real, you know, because because you do a good job of kind of navigating that line in between. Both of you do of like you know story. Your stories are really good for people who are deep in the industry, and then you know knuckleheads like me who just like watching streaming and uh, and and hearing about the trends. Uh, but let's start with some news in the streaming space. All right, so Disney has finally completed its uh, what seventy one point three billion dollar acquisition of uh, Fox, uh, taking on the. I, I think it's Jason. Uh, it's remind me what all they get in this deal, like in the broad stories. They, it's Fox News kind of remains its own thing, and then basically everything else. Yeah. So, so, um, so a certain number of assets uh, were spun off into their own company, which is also called Fox, which is very confusing. So, Fox Broadcasting, Fox News, Fox Sports, Fox Business Network are not part of this deal, but pretty much everything else is. So, Disney now has control of the 20, 20th Century Fox Movie Studio, uh, the Twentieth TV TV Studio, cable. Networks like FX, National Geographic, India Star Network. They also take over Fox's 30% stake in Hulu. So Disney now has a 60% stake in, in the Hulu streaming service. So there is a whole lot of content and assets that um, are now part of the uh, are now under Disney. Now, I, I, not to jump right to the streaming, uh, but since that is kind of the theme of it, I, I we may have talked about this back when they first announced this, but. You know, we all know that Disney's got its own streaming service in the works. Um, and, and, you know, how are we – do we have a good image of how they're going to balance that with the fact that they also have this, you know, controlling stake of Hulu? Yeah, so D- Disney CEO Bob Iger has been pretty consistent on this for about the last year. He sees Disney's streaming approach as a three-pronged approach. So first off, you have ESPN+, Plus, which is already launched. So that's kind of the um, – you know, sports portion of this. And then there is Disney Plus, which is Disney's kind of family family friendly streaming service, which is going to launch later this year. They have a um, an investor's day on on April 11th, just a couple days away, where they're going to give us more information on what we can expect out of that. But that will have content like a new Star Wars st- series, a new Pixar series, a new high school musical series. So basically they are mining all of their IP to come up with with this new service that's going to be family friendly. And then Hulu is the third part of this of their streaming approach. So what they anticipate with Hulu is that more um, grown-up content, uh, I hesitate to say adult content because that makes it sound like it's something different. <laughs> but 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 that is that is the, the word that Bob Iger has used. Uh, that that kind of the 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 Disney programming that's more for adults. So certainly FX, a lot of ABC's content, even some of Nat- uh, National Geographic's content will go to Hulu. So so there are um, they are going to have three different services. I fully expect that they will bundle those together in some way at a discount. But there is not going to be one service that's going to offer you everything that you want from Disney. You're going to have to subscribe to all three of them. With conversations like this, I always like to lay a little uh, baseline transparency at the beginning of 
kind of what each of us have at home in terms of our TV slash streaming setup. Uh, Sarah, I can't remember if we've had you walk us through it, um, but uh, what's what's your home setup? Um, well, I don't have cable. I have uh, Hulu, HBO, Showtime, uh, Netflix, and Amazon Prime. And do you are you like year round on Hulu and HBO and all those, or are you kind of a uh, like? when your favorite shows come back or, or you just keep it on all year? Yeah, no, I've stuck with them. Um, even though, I mean, obviously Game of Thrones coming up, that's why I originally got HBO, but um, I just kept it throughout the years. I think uh, in my place, we are um, Netflix, uh, let's see, Amazon and Hulu, uh, which Hulu was a somewhat recent. We used to only do that for Handmaid's Tale. Mm-hmm. And then honestly, Hulu's gotten real good. Um, and have. now... Yeah. Now it's free, which we can talk we can talk about a bit too, because I'm a Spotify subscriber right. and yeah. I, mm-hmm. I, I don't really mind the uh, the ads. So um, you know that that maybe gets us ahead, but that deal um, with Spotify that's pretty recent, right? That they just dropped basically changed it up from being super cheap to being straight up free if you already have a Spotify subscription, right? Yeah, it, uh, it is. Yeah, it's within the they, well they they've had uh, Hulu and Spotify have had a partnership going back a couple years now, and it started with. The, um, the the service that was aimed at college students and Hulu was layered into that and then they expanded it a little broader. So, um, yeah, this is part of – Hulu is, is doing a couple different partnerships like this as they're really trying to ramp up their their uh, subscriber numbers uh, with all – with Disney Plus and, and with a couple other competitors coming in. They really want to um, you know broaden their base and their footprint. And we've seen this before with publishers and platforms working together and experimenting with these media bundles. Um, You know, they experiment with the college students, kind of test the waters there. And if it goes well, then they end up expanding it to, to all adults. Yeah, college students are like the new Ireland. It used to be that like whenever whenever Facebook or whoever wanted to test out something new, it was always in Ireland. <laughs> and then they're like, okay, if they buy it, we'll we'll move it elsewhere. Sarah, what's your take on this uh, mega acquisition by Disney, both in terms of as a consumer, you know, how it makes you feel about the content mm-hmm. uh, that's going to come out of this, but then also just as, you know, y- your perspective from covering the, the media industry as well? Yeah, I mean, I am a, um, a mild Star Wars fan, so I'm excited to see what they – the original content that they put up um, from that perspective. But I think, you know, like a lot of consumers, I just feel like there's so many options on the marketplace now. Um, You know, I go home and I have trouble trying to figure out what I want to watch, let alone where I want to watch it. Um, And all of these decisions, all of these different options are going to create issues, I've got to believe, to get subscribers. So there's three new options here on the table. Um, I can't imagine at some point there's going to be a reckoning and at some point we're all going to be tired of all the options and, and the winners will win out and, you know, the losers will, will fade away. Now, Jason, remind us what's your, what's your home setup? Uh, I pretty much have everything. I mean, a lot of that is, is part of the job that I have, but in addition to cable and HBO and Showtime as part of that, um, I have Hulu, Netflix, Amazon, CBS All Access, I feel like there's a couple that I'm forgetting about. And then for the other networks that I cover that I maybe don't have, I you know usually have access to screeners. So I am atypical and then I probably have a lot more on my plate than, um, than, than kind of the average consumer. But yeah, I have a little bit of everything. So let, let's uh, talk about briefly about CBS All Access too because I didn't want to skip over that. They've obviously gone – I don't know if all in is the right phrase, but they've gone very heavy into these exclusives – 
um, and and really coming up with shows. The first one was uh, remind me the the Star Trek show that was on there. Uh, Star Trek Discovery. Bef- before Discovery. that, they had uh, the Good Fight, which was the Good Wife spinoff. So they've it's been interesting. I, I wrote about them again in the past week. They are they have been doing over the past couple of years what. Disney and and AT&T with its upcoming um, streaming service and Comcast with its upcoming streaming service are going to try to do very rapidly, which is they've slowly built this OTT offering that has exclusive content that has um, that has kind of you know they call it IP intellect, intellectual property that is interesting enough that it will get people to subscribe. So if you are you are a Good Wife fan, you want to subscribe to see the Good Fight. If you were Star Trek fan, you want to see not only Star Trek Discovery but literally the three other Star Trek series that they have in the works. If you are a Twilight Zone fan, you're going to want to subscribe for the Twilight Zone, which just started this past week, and then they just announced that they're going to be doing a new miniseries based on The Stand, which was a miniseries about 20 years ago. They're going to be doing another one of those next year. So they've really um, been very successful in a smaller footprint as as Netflix or Hulu or some of the others in building a, a, a base of original content that people care enough that they will subscribe for. Yeah, I'm kind of at that point with CBS All Access where like I'm I'm where I was with maybe uh, Hulu uh, a year ago, you know, where I'm like right on the the precipice of of pulling the trigger. Like I'm one really good offer away because mm-hmm. <laughs> I think that's what it was with Hulu. Is at some point they're just like, what if we gave it to you for you know like three bucks? Yeah. <laughs> and mm-hmm. I was like, yeah, okay, done. Um, but uh, but you know it's been fast, and I have I'm so I'm so fascinated by the Twilight Zone. I, I really want to watch it, and so that's that's. You know, sometimes that's all it takes. Yeah. It's just that one that one thing that really wants to hook you. But before we leave Disney, uh, I'm curious from either of you, it was has anything surprising come out of this from, you know, obviously we talked a lot about the acquisition when they first announced it. Um, but over the course of the past few, you know, many months that led up to it becoming final, did anything surprising come out? Did it shake out any differently than we anticipated it would? So far it hasn't, but what I am now keeping an eye on is kind of in the aftermath of what AT&T ended up doing to Warner Media and what used to be called Turner and I don't really think has a name now, you know, where they had said for so long that they were going to keep HBO kind of autonomous as it had been. Mm-hmm. Now they've completely restructured that organization and kind of folded in HBO right alongside the the, the Turner networks and and the other content from Warner Media. And this is something, you know, we saw this with Disney as well, where Bob Iger has very clearly said, we talked about this a year ago when we did a, we had a cover story with John Langraff where he had said, I love FX for what FX is. I want it to operate the way that it always did. Well, for that to happen, FX kind of needs to, to continue to be its own thing and not lumped in with some of the other Disney content. So considering that AT&T went back on its word with, with regard to HBO, um, I'm really interested to see what Disney does uh, with FX. And I know Disney does have a history with Marvel and with Lucasfilm of of really letting these entities that they bring on board continue to just kind of operate, um, you know, the way that they always did. So that makes me optimistic about FX. But clearly, uh, you know, as we've seen on the AT&T side, just because a big corporation says something uh, before a merger happens doesn't mean that that's what's going to happen once it closes. All right, we're going to take a little break, and uh, then we'll be back in just a few moments to continue the conversation. Thanks again to the sponsor of this week's episode, Facebook, which has a new podcast called Three and a Half Degrees, The Power of Connection. As we mentioned earlier, each episode of this new podcast features conversations with two of the smartest people in business today. 
Let's listen to a bit of the newest episode's chat on the power of diversity with the other guests on the show, Jonathan Mindenhall from 21st Century Brand. Can you create harmony if you've got a room full of diverse people with different perspectives and different opinions and different cultural lenses? And I think that our task today is to create as much harmony through diversity as possible. Look for Three and a Half Degrees, spelled out wherever you get your podcast, or visit facebook.com slash three and a half degrees to learn more and subscribe. That's Three and a Half Degrees, a new podcast from Facebook. Let's let's jump topics a little bit because I want to make sure that we also talk about your inter, you know your conversation that you had recently uh, with Mike Schur. Uh Mike Schur is a... Uh, I guess he's technically a showrunner, but he's just one of those people who seems to transcend most titles. What do we call him? Yeah, I mean, he, he he's certainly, you know, he's a showrunner, he's a producer, he is a creator of some of the best TV shows um, of the past several years. If he didn't create them, he wrote on them. So he was a writer on The Office for several years. He was a co-creator on Parks and Rec, which was one of the best comedies of the last decade. He uh, created The Good Place, which is one of the current best comedies on TV. And he was also an executive producer on Master of None, which was on Netflix for a couple seasons. And then he's an executive producer on a new broadcast series called Abby's, which he didn't create, but he's helping to shepherd. And in this world where every big content creator, it seems like, is running to streaming and getting, you know, landing these big deals, Mike Schur is one um, of a handful of creators who have proven that it is still possible to thrive on broadcast and also to create shows that are really compelling and are as strong and as riveting as anything on streaming. So he's kind of the exception to the rule, it seems like. Yeah, and tell us about the deal that NBC struck with him the other day because, I mean, this was like a pro-athlete level deal. Yeah, so well, so there there have been a number of, of kind of the, the TV's top creators over the last year or two have landed these mega deals, many of which have been with the likes of FX – I mean, uh, sorry, with, uh, with uh, Netflix. So Shonda Rhimes lured over to Netflix. Ryan Murphy lured over to Netflix. Those were deals mm-hmm. that are kind of $100 million plus. I think Ryan Murphy's might top out at $300 million. So that has kicked off this content scramble or the scramble for everybody to lock in creators. All the streaming services are trying to do it and a lot of the other um, – a lot of the other uh, production com- TV production companies are trying to do the same thing. So Mike Schur is, um, had a deal with Universal Television, which is NBC-owned. It's part of NBC Universal. So what they did is they, they locked him into a new five-year deal um, worth, I think, roughly you know, in excess of $100 million to, to stay there. And he'll continue to create shows for broadcast, probably to continue to create some shows for streaming as well. But, but we're seeing uh, Mindy Kaling just signed a huge deal. Greg Berlanti last year signed a huge deal. Pretty much um, over the last year or two, if you are a big content creator, you are going to be making a lot of money. Uh, you know, there's also a recurring theme that most of those folks have been on the cover of Ad Week. So I'm just saying <laughs> that it just doesn't hurt. There is. I mean, I think actually all of our TV creators of the year going back, uh, I think, four or five years, I think with the exception of one, they've all signed, subsequently signed these huge deals. Kenya Barris last year, Ryan Murphy, mm-hmm. Shonda Rhimes, Greg Berlanti. So, yeah, we have we have a pretty good streak going there. <laughs> we are star makers. <laughs> um, it's, it's totally on us, not on them. Um, Sarah, what do you think of this trend? You know, it's like I used to be very skeptical of the – 
the personality side of, of content. Like I felt like maybe it was overblown, but I have to admit, like, as we talk about these names, I'm like, oh, those people put out a lot of good stuff. <laughs> yeah, they do. It can't just be by chance that all of this good content is coming from these folks. Um, I'm really interested in hearing more about what Mike Scher has been doing in comedy. I mean, I personally watch a lot of reality television simply because I can't take the news cycle anymore and I need to go home and just turn my brain off. Um, so I'm wondering, I mean, Jason, did you talk about this with him? You know, why are we seeing more comedy now? I guess what what's the opportunity there given the news cycle? Uh, I mean, I think in general, you know, he, uh, that is certainly, a, you know, a part of it here, but I think it's also just his approach to it and and creating shows that just don't feel, especially on broadcast, that just don't feel cookie cutter. I mean, mm-hmm. there's so many of broadcast sitcoms where, you know, set up joke, set up joke, set up joke, and it's him really kind of finding his own path um, and and breaking through that way. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, one thing one thing that he said... It was really interesting in that interview about about why he still loves broadcast when when so many others don't is that he even though he complains about it all the time he likes the fact that every episode he has to cut down to 21 minutes mm-hmm. and 30 seconds and you and he's like that basically forces you to cut everything you know cut to just you know like the the, the bare essentials of what makes a great you know a great show mm-hmm. um, and he says but 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 in that actually has has helped him, and he thinks that it helps make a better show at twenty one thirty than it would be at thirty minutes. Or you know, he says you, know, you look at a lot of a lot of streaming shows where it just feels like they aired everything that they shot. And he didn't name names, but I think certainly that's a criticism that people have had with like the Arrested Development episodes on Netflix and and just certain things that kind of lead to streaming bloat. Now he said there's exceptions like Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt, where he says you know like the 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 joke to kind of length ratio is is as good as it was um, when those creators did Thirty Rock previously, but in general he feels like it's something where as much as he hates it every every episode where he's cutting sh- uh, jokes that he loves that ultimately um, it's kind of forced him to 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 create better shows and create finding your shows. He says, you know, the best art is kind of created under restrictions. And, you know, you look at an indie movie or, you know, something like The Matrix that was made on a little budget and then it comes out and everybody loves it. Then they give them all the money in the world to make the other episode, the the sequels. And you sit there and you're like, what is this? What what happened? Mm -hmm. Um, And he says that that's a lot of it is kind of not having restrictions. And that's what happens to art. It sounds a lot like writing for print, you know, when you have to squeeze yeah. so many words yes. in, uh, you choose the best ones. Yeah. The, uh, it, it, you know, it's I, as Jason knows, I'm addicted to the Good Place podcast, uh, not just because I'm a fan of the show, but honestly just because of the cool insights it gives you into how TV is made and how modern TV is made. Uh, and then also how Mike Sure does stuff because he's not on there all the time, but he pops up. But the thing that they talk about a lot is, and I'm, I'm so glad that that podcast includes the editors every once in a while um, and the people who aren't necessarily kind of the the on-screen talent because they talk about that that this length issue you know that they have to produce what is it what you say is like 21 and a half minutes or whatever and and so they they end up like hacking and hacking and hacking and then they get down and they end up at like 23 and then they and then they put that on streaming (laughs) and they put the 20 and so they end up like but i think that's impressive that they don't just like we've been re-watching the oa now that now that season two is out um and and it reminded me that the oa Every episode of that is a different length. Mm-hmm. It's just like whatever they felt like. And 
I I love that show, but I think anyone who likes that show, the OA, I mean, uh, w- would agree it's a bit self indulgent. <laughs> it's got that just like we felt like doing this for forty eight minutes, <laughs> whether you wanted to, whether you were into it or not. Um, and the and the other aspect of uh, you know of that. Kind of the limits versus creativity too that that they've talked about is the good place came out of unless Jason correct me if I'm wrong but you know they've mentioned a lot on that podcast that it came out of uh, NBC basically telling Mike sure you know stick around and you can do whatever you want like you just you do a show that you want to do and he threw out this philosophy based <laughs> kind of <laughs> almost theological show that he thought no one would have ever approved before he was kind of a famous showrunner uh and they ended up doing it so in in the end i think that's part of what makes that show such a so so great is that it's a combination of someone being given quasi unlimited freedom but then also a very limited uh, you know, forum in which to create this stuff. Did, did he talk about? I'd lo- I'd love to hear more about this because I do think it's fascinating that he's really into linear TV. They still into network TV versus kind of wanting to just jump ship and go to a place like Netflix. Well, you know what what he says is that you know, he says, "Listen, I don't I don't say, oh, I'm making I'm I, I want to make a show for broadcast." He says, you know, he comes up with an idea and and he tries to figure out what the best place for it would be. And it just happens that a lot of these shows that he has come up with, he feels like are best at broadcast. So he definitely feels, it's not that he's saying, oh, I'm not going to do streaming. In fact, as we mentioned before, he was an executive producer on Master of None, which was on Netflix. So it, it, it's just not that. But it is, um, I think that he just appreciates broadcast in a way that others others don't. And whether it is, you know, you talk about kind of him, you know, NBC giving him freedom, but they also, he was also smart enough to cast Ted Danson in that show. So, um, you know, I, I think of a phrase that Donald Glover used when I talked to him about Atlanta. He talked about how he Trojan horsed that show where he kind of, you know, sold it as one thing and then it turned out being something completely different. And I feel like The Good Place, there's a little bit of that going in where you said, oh, a new Kristen Bell, Ted Danson show. Okay, yeah, I'm all for that. And then it turns into this kind of richly layered show about, like you said, philosophy and all these other interesting things. So I think he's also very smart. Like he knows, even if he's given freedom to do things, he knows how to do it in a way to make it palatable to a broadcast audience, which again, a lot of people either just don't try to do, don't care to do anymore. So he is, um, you know, he is he is kind of one 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 of the few in there who is really still fighting the fight when it comes to broadcast. So, not at risk of a tangent, what did Donald Glover say that he uh, that kind of sold? Did he sell Atlanta as a comedy and then? Well, and I then think, made... yeah, I think I think he basically I, I think that it was sold more as like, oh, it's these it's these people trying to like, uh, you know, make a go of it in the music industry in Atlanta. And and he knew everything else that he wanted to do there, but he didn't say it at the time. And it wasn't until you know the deal was in place and you know he started making the show where then all of a sudden all these other things snuck in. And of course they were all for it at that point. But if he had gone in and tried to I mean, just think of like these these incredible episodes that Atlanta has done from Teddy Perkins to to a few other things they've tried. And just imagine pitching that, saying, Well, one week, you know, we're gonna I'm gonna be wearing white face and uh, and 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 the next week we're going to kind of be parroting kind of like a BET type network and people like wouldn't know what to do with that. So um, and 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 you just see that um, you know Mike, again Mike sure doing doing a similar thing. I mean you think you see people being smart about how they approach um, TV production. Yeah, Sarah's point about escapism in TV. I, I've been thinking about it ever since you said that, Sarah, because like 
Good Place was my, originally was my, I'm too depressed. I need to like watch something completely detached from reality. Mm-hmm. And and I remember that with Atlanta. I'm like, oh man, I could use a good laugh. I'll watch this new Donald Glover comedy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that show is heavy. Yes. <laughs> like, And, uh, you, you know, in Good Place, like, not so much in season one, but definitely in the later seasons, they really got into some political issues. Into you know, of course, mm-hmm. they. I don't know if this is a spoiler, but they end up spending more time on Earth uh, and and addressing issues. The writers have been very politically active, um, and so yeah. It, so so Sarah, I, I have to ask, even though know, again it's a tangent, but like, what are your what what are your like turn your brain off shows that that you that really help like reboot you? Uh, well, Griner, I'm a, a big Bravo person. I watch all the Real Housewives, Vanderpump Rules. I'm not necessarily proud of it, but I do keep up with those folks as much as I follow the news cycle because once I get home and I, I get comfortable, I, I really can't think about news anymore and I just have to watch ladies fight over cocktails and, and that's what I look <laughs> forward to every night. Do you go back and like rewatch any of the older ones on streaming? I mean, do you stream much of anything in terms of reality? Oh, of course. I mean, Hulu has all the old, uh, old episodes of The Housewives, um, so you know you can you can go there and watch it at your leisure. Um, but it is an issue because I, as I said, I'm not a cable subscriber, so I have to wait until those episodes are off of Bravo and on Hulu, and so I'm always on about a year nine month delay. So no spoilers, please. I know I'm sure you're keeping up with them just as much as I am. <laughs> yeah, you've come to the right place <laughs> to avoid spoilers. Um, well, let's let's move on to uh, your cover story uh, this week, Jason, um, because it's a fascinating topic. I have to admit, this is a trend I didn't even know was happening, and I'd like to kick it off by asking you a very simple question, Jason. What is Pluto TV? <laughs> so so Pluto. So it's. Uh, I also would say two months ago, this is not a story that I would have would have probably done or even kind of cited as a trend when when this was a, when Viacom announced they were buying Pluto TV and I will get to what it is in a second um but uh, but so Pluto TV is what is called an AVOD service that stands for Advertising Video on Demand. That is um, – it's different than an SVOD service, Subscription Video on Demand, which is what the Netflix and Hulus and Amazons are. So for SVOD services, you are paying a monthly fee to subscribe to them. Often they come without ads or at least have an ad-free option. AVOD is completely free. So Pluto TV is one of them. Um, there's a couple other ones, Zumo, Tubi TV, uh, Sony Crackle is, is one. So the idea with these AVOD services is that they are um, apps or they exist on um, most connected TV devices, several smart TV devices, and they are – they offer free TV and, and they have very, very considerable uh, libraries. You know, A lot of them have – in excess of 10,000 movies or TV episodes. Uh, a lot of them now have a monthly user base that is in excess of 10 million. So as we are hitting this point in the, you know, and Sarah was talking about this a little bit before with just all of these streaming options and, in, you know, industry experts really agree that most consumers are only going to subscribe to two or three of these a month. That leaves a whole lot mm-hmm. of others that are just going to be, you know, out are going to kind of be out of luck. But as people are cord cutting or, um, you know, or cord nevers and you commit to, you say, okay, I'm going to do, let's just say Netflix and HBO are going to be my two. But I want to watch other things that aren't just on those two. And that's where AVOD services step in. And they, uh, some of them, especially like, um, like Pluto, are arranged in a TV grid. So it's almost just like watching TV. And they've got 100 plus linear channels, quote unquote linear channels, and then these extensive um, 
these extensive on-demand libraries. So for for no money, um, as long as you have a broadband connection, you could watch, you know, as much TV as 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 you can handle. And and the uh, these libraries are getting better and better. Tubi just signed. You know, Sarah will probably be interested in this. Tubi just signed a, a deal to get um, a lot of early Bachelor uh, mm, franchise nice. uh, seasons and um, and other. And I think uh, Pluto has like 140 plus content partners. So there is a lot of kind of free uh, library movie and TV content um, that you can access that, um, you know, people are, are, are putting an even closer eye on this now as, as they're realizing that they're only going to be able to subscribe to one or two things. No, I, I mean, I feel like we should. So the, the trend that you've written about is this rise, this uh, surprising kind of return of free TV, of, of ad-supported streaming. Um, but I feel like the biggest obstacle to this is is just got to be awareness, right? I mean, it's like I feel like right. I stumble across massive libraries all the time on Roku and stuff, but I'm just like, yeah, it's probably just a bunch of, you know, garbage early 90s movies or sitcoms or something. Um, but, like, how do some of these services – I mean, is that what – is that Viacom's plan with Pluto TV is to just – put some effort behind actually raising awareness of what yeah, these things so, are. So so before I get to Viacom specifically, so so a lot of these services have been around for like five years, but they've really this is a trend that has really only kind of heated up in the last year for a couple reasons. Part of it is because um, like I said, a lot of these now have apps on on smart TVs. That takes two or three years to to navigate that, whether it's creating the chip, making the deals, then actually going into production. So so you have that, and then all of a sudden now, um, you know these these companies are you know right there. You turn on your smart TV, and you've got you know Tube, a Tubi app or a Pluto app. Also, um, some of them Tubi has been making the most headway on this is that on Comcast um, Xfinity X1 set top box. There is a place now for um, for Pluto, and they're I think the only third app in there, and then uh, so so you're seeing you know the, these kind of deals happen that are raising their awareness, um, and then as the viewership goes up, they are in turn investing more in content, and the content providers now that they're seeing that there's more people coming, they're giving them better content. So so this thing is just slowly kind of getting bigger and bigger, and now that's where Viacom comes in, and what they basically have decided that unlike Almost all of their other uh, big competitors, Disney, AT&T, Discovery, um, and uh, Comcast, they – instead of creating their own SVOD service, which they were going to do as recently as a year ago, they have shifted to Avon and they have bought this and they have said – what we are going to do is we are going to take our Viacom library content and we are going to start to put that on Pluto. We're going to create some kind of uh, – um, Viacom brand specific channels, and this is gonna this is gonna be content by the way that's like more than eighteen months old. So like SpongeBob will probably we're gonna is gonna be on Pluto at some point, but it's gonna be SpongeBob episodes from from a couple years ago and earlier. And they are going to you know make Pluto this um, you know this lot you know they're gonna enhance this library with all this great Viacom content. They are going to use their Viacom networks to promote Pluto. And then they're also going to use Pluto itself to um, point people toward um, the the niche SVOD services that Viacom does have. So these these aren't broad based, but like they have a Noggin channel, they have a Comedy Central very specific SVOD channel. So so they really see this as a way to get a lot of things accomplished in the streaming space. Um, and then at the same time, um, you know, as as 
all these other kind of cable providers as they're desperately trying to keep subscribers from ditching them. Um, they are now offering, you know, you see Comcast is, has Netflix right on their set-top box. And I've already said Comcast has Tubi there as well. Well, Pluto is going to now be uh, – I'm sorry, Viacom is going to now be taking Pluto around and saying, here, listen, this is free content that we're going to give to you as part of our kind of negotiations. And, um, you know, now this is something else that you can you can point to to say, look, we're offering you all this other stuff in addition to, to everything you already subscribe to. So they have uh, they have big plans for expanding, expanding Pluto's footprint. Sarah, what do you think are going to be some of the obstacles for this? I mean, it, on, on the one hand, strategically, it makes sense. And I think a lot of people would be like, oh, OK, cool, free mm-hmm. and, you know, a good sized library. And these are shows I've actually heard of. Um, but that said, I mean, I've, I again, I feel like there's. There's a ton of content out there that I'm always just like, man, I don't even remember that this stuff exists. I just go on autopilot and click the same like three things on my Roku every night. Right, right. Um, You know, I think it's interesting because these services might be accessible for a different demographic than you're going to see. I mean, even at a a $9, $15 price point that some of these streaming services are, I mean, that's not affordable to a lot of different families. Um, You know, so I think that this is going to be an audience, um, it may not look exactly like what we're seeing for Netflix and Hulu and some of those other streaming services. But, um, you know, I wouldn't put it past, you know, folks trying to seek out content when it's free, they're going to find it. Um, So I don't doubt that this is going to be a a large and growing audience. Um, I think it does just become a matter of what's going to become your daily habit, um, which is every publisher and every platform's dream, you know, to to have that reflex to go to that that service and to pull up the program that you want to watch, um, but once these services make a name for themselves, I I can't you know I am sure they'll be able to keep their audience trapped. Um, what I'm interested in though, and and Jason maybe you explored this a little bit more, could explore this a little bit more, is, um, you know, as we get deeper into AVOD services, how AVOD and SVOD are going to interact down the line. I mean, um, this is seemingly a just a big wild, wild west right now, and there's no one clear path um, to success. So um, between these different services, I have to imagine um, if we were to predict there would be some sort of SVOD, AVOD combination i mean what do you what do you think yeah i think nobody really thinks that avod is going to suddenly kind of you know triumph over netflix and be mm-hmm. the, the future of streaming but what's interesting is that it's becoming an essential part of, of streaming like this idea of this retro idea of free tv is going to be is going to be you know a, a very kind of significant part of streaming's future and um, i think it, and a lot of it's going to be supplemental i mean i think it's going to it's it's basically going to round out your media diet so nobody is going to you know, you look at everything in front of you is maybe going to gravitate to a Pluto or a, a Tubi or a, Zoom, or a Zumo first, but um, but they will like that as an alternative to Netflix because also some of these are offering you know news or weather, and um, and you can't get that on Netflix, um, and you also can't get free on Netflix. So I think mm-hmm. that the the feeling is that it's going to just kind of round out um, somebody's media spend or media habits and. Um, and it's also, you know, we haven't gotten into this yet, but, you know, certainly for advertisers, this is who are find, find themselves completely shut out of the mm-hmm. Netflix and the HBOs. 
this is a way for them to have a foothold in in streaming. And yes, they can be on Hulu and they can be on CBS All Access, but there is also ad-free packages for that. So you're not even getting everybody mm-hmm. who subscribes to those services. But with AVOD, you are. And you are getting a much younger demographic than watches linear. You are getting people mm-hmm. who, um, you know, you're getting cord cutters, you're getting cord nevers. So this is also um, something that advertisers, as they're seeing these numbers, and these growing numbers are increasingly being drawn to. So this is this is also something, uh, a great way for, for advertisers to, you know, again, be a part of TV's future in a way that even a couple years ago, they wouldn't have anticipated. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and, I, oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, I was just going to say I uh, was covering the Apple News Plus um, news last week and a little bit into this week, and that was a big part of the conversation with that announcement as well. Um, you know, Apple has said that there's not going to be advertising on their new streaming service. Um, you know, so now media buyers are looking toward these sorts of platforms to spread their message. Um, I'd be interested, too, to know whether this is going to push media spends a little bit faster into OTT from linear, if we're going to see that um, coming out of, of media buys now. I mean, if you talk, like, and I say in my story that um, I think last year the estimate for OTT advertising was somewhere around $2.7 billion, mm. which is a drop in the bucket compared to the $70 billion in, in, in TV advertising. Mm-hmm. But um, that number was up more than 50% over the previous year. And again, that's going to continue to accelerate. I don't think, again, I don't see uh, much like I don't think that this is going to overtake streaming. I don't necessarily think this is going to overtake linear. But I think as um, – as advertisers are increasingly trying to reach younger audiences, they're they're going to take advantage of this, and this mm-hmm. is going to be a big part of Viacom's upfront push. They've been saying, you know, with with the addition of of Pluto and our linear channels and our um, and our streaming uh, our streaming channels for you know streaming MTV via the app or whatever, we can now reach 50% of all um, adults 18 to 34. Mm. Um, Pluto is a big part of that. So mm-hmm. um, so I think that, um, you know, everyone is just kind of taking advantage of, of any way they can they can get younger younger people in there and certainly, you know, get – put them in front of – put those eyeballs in front of uh, products from, from brands. Um, they're gonna, you know, try to try to exploit that as much as they can and leverage that. And uh, you know, I think that 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 OTT number is gonna get uh, much higher for ad revenue in the next year or two. Well, another interesting aspect of this too is kind of the arms race around original content that we've been seeing in the last few years. Uh, you know, primarily with Netflix and, and HBO, but also with Amazon and and everybody is. You know, they're not just making, you know, shows like Schitt's Creek or something where it's not necessarily, you know, it's a good show that doesn't exactly cost a fortune. Usually it's these massive blockbuster, you know, huge expenses. And Netflix has racked up, a you know, a ton of debt uh, trying to build out this mess. It, they've all been in this, you know, it is a classic arms race of just build the biggest shows, build everything. And so this is kind of an interesting strategy in, in opposition to that is like if you're focusing on older libraries of you know stuff you're right. just not going to not going to end up in this ever escalating billion dollars in debt trying to trying to create the next game of thrones yeah and in part the fact that that is happening with the, the SVODs and um as, so what netflix has done is as they're focusing more on original content they're pulling away their library content i think i, I want to say about it shrunk by like something like 30% in the last year or two. And now that content's available. And, uh, and so now you were seeing – so this presents an opportunity for these AVOD services where all of a sudden you can get kind of higher quality content that hadn't been available before because Netflix had snapped it up. So as those SVOD providers shift 
to original, it's going to even open up, you know, unlock more library capabilities for um, that, that the AVOD services can kind of get their hands on. So um, just kind of uh, wrapping up the conversation, what do you, I mean, do you have a good vision for a year from now, how the streaming experience or just, you know, like we talked about a year ago, I don't think I would have thought I would even have Hulu. You know, I felt very set in my ways of like, oh, I've got, I've, I've got Netflix to stream stuff and I've got Prime to buy uh, episodes of things, you know, and, and some streaming, some back catalog stuff. Um, but, you know, I feel like it's been a very transformative and man, when the... You know, when the Disney service launches uh, for me as, as a parent, you know, um, and as a nerd, uh, you know, that's going to be uh, a game changer uh, that we've talked about. But I mean, how different do you think the landscape is going to be for your, your basic kind of consumer TV behavior a year from now? Well, I'll say I'll say two things and I'll, I'll keep it kind of AVOD focused since that's what we've been talking about. The one is I'm really interested to see. Uh, which media company kind of follows Viacom's lead into this space. I thought it might be Discovery until earlier this week when Discovery announced that they were going to launch their own streaming service. But this is an opportunity. So I, I'll be interested to see um, if there is other media companies who who try to buy, you know, some of the other existing services and, um, and kind of, you know, build out um, their streaming strategy that way. So that's the first thing. But the second is, um, you know, we'll – we call it Streamageddon or, or uh, you know, there's other terms for it, but it is going to be a bloodbath in the next year. When you think about how many services already exist and you have to add in Disney Plus, which is going to go to the top of a lot of lists. Like as you said, you know, if you are a parent, your kid's going to want to see the new Star Wars uh, uh, TV series. So you're going to have to subscribe to Disney Plus. You've got uh, whatever AT&T is going to be coming out with later this year. You've got Apple later this year. You've got Discovery next year. You've got Comcast early next year. And it's going to force people to make a lot of tough decisions about about streaming. And um, so I think, you know, you're going to see people kind of reallocating their spend or, or whether it's – you know, I'm also – I'll be curious to see whether people kind of shift to – all right, let me subscribe to CBS All Access for a month and watch everything I want to watch in a month. And then I'm going to drop that and move on to something else the next month. And I'll come back to CBS All Access a year from now when there's more content. That could happen. But um, but it's going to it's going to kind of force everybody to seriously reexamine their media spend, uh, their monthly media spend, and whether that is – accelerating cord cutting because they decide, you know what, I would rather subscribe to four SVOD services versus the amount of money that I'm paying for cable. Um, so there's that, whether it's saying, here's the two or three services that I absolutely have to subscribe to and I'll make do without the other ones. Um, and then that is, again, where these AVOD services will will kind of be able to, to step in to say, you know what, okay, so I, I'm not going to – I'm just going to keep Netflix and HBO, but now I'm going to spend more time on Pluto because I like Pluto's content and I like – and I have a channel that's devoted to um, – to the hills because, you know, the hills, they're going to revive that this summer. So they've already said they're going to do a hill-specific channel for a bit or or whatever. So I think that um, it is going to look different. I'm not quite sure how different it's going to look, but I think it's going to it's going to force everybody to make some tough decisions and just to reevaluate how they they spend money on media every every month. And it'll be kind of fascinating to see um, how people adjust their habits and their spending as a result of kind of having that 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 moment of clarity. All right. Well, and thank you so much, as always, uh, Jason, for bringing us up to speed on all this. And uh, it's always great to have you on the show. Yeah, happy to be here. 
And Sarah Dirty, thank you again for joining us uh, and uh, and for helping kind of uh, dig through all this. There, it's an exciting time. I'm earnestly. I'm not just saying that. I feel like like this is actually a really both as a you know. If I I think hopefully the ad industry is getting kind of past the media industry is getting a little past its its fear and <laughs> insecurity in a lot of this space and actually getting excited by the 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 range of potential that's out there. But at interesting times. Yeah, it's a great time to be a consumer and uh, to be covering it, too. All right. Well, we will be back uh, next week and uh, and have lots more to talk about. Our theme music is by Home. This week's episode was produced by Anya Fernando with production assistance by Josh Rios and edited by Lane McGibney. Uh, and uh, if you'd like to send us a question or comment, we're at podcast at adweek.com. That's podcast at adweek.com. And if you haven't already, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcast because those reviews mean a lot to us personally and they help new listeners discover the show. For Adweek, I'm David Greiner. We'll be back next week.